I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to this week's episode of Good Faith Weekly. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, Autumn and I going to the Black Lives Rally here in Norman, Oklahoma during our first segment. Our second segment, we're going to take a little deeper dive. The President of the United States announced this week he's coming to Tulsa, Oklahoma on Juneteenth. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. And then our final segment, we're going to be interviewing the President of the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, President David Cassidy. So you want to stay tuned for the interview. Autumn, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. I still have sort of the chants going in my mind from our time on Saturday, marching in the hot heat with the Black Lives Matter crew. Yeah, what an incredible event. Now, it was organized by students from the University of Oklahoma. You know a little bit more about it. Yeah, so the OU Black Student Association partnered with the um, University of Oklahoma Law Black Student Association, and they formed a rally. And, you know, Norman happens to be sort of a quintessential college town. So a lot of the Norman citizens, the faculty, the staff joined in and we met at the high school and all walked through sort of a historic part of Norman. And I think something that really surprised me was there were a lot of folks along that route and sort of old nice houses and churches along the way who set up water stations and snack stations and dog water and uh, soaker hoses across the road. Um, so even folks that weren't marching were supportive of the march. Yeah, I mean, it was we were there obviously to cover the event. Uh, we took our cameras, interviewed participants, all up Mitch, and down. I may have participated a little. I don't know we were just <laughs> supposed to cover it. Well, Sorry, that's what I was going to say. We were there that. to to cover the event, but as a Christian organization that attempts to provide resources uh, and. Um, uh, reflection upon the intersection of faith and culture, we do that through an inclusive Christian lens, which stands for a Christian understanding of social justice. And so while we were there to cover the event, we were also there to participate in the event and to take a very bold stand saying loudly and clearly, we believe black lives matter, and that this idea and concept of systemic racism is absolutely 100% real, and that we need to be doing something as a Christian community to bring justice within that system, and to really up in that system and attempt to to revision that, reform it, redirect uh, it into a way that is justice for all of our citizens. Yeah. And I think it is really interesting because this whole concept, like you brought up a couple of times this week, systemic racism seems to be, uh, you know, the phrase of the couple of weeks since we lost George Floyd. And something else that I've been hearing a lot is anti-racism. And it's a concept that I think I've known about for a while, but I didn't really realize what an active verb um, it is, that you have to continue on that path of anti-racism, and it's a daily battle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is. that Systemic racism literally means that the system is baptized in uh, what we have defined here in the United States as white supremacy. Uh, and white supremacy just isn't the KKK. It is the systems that were created and developed, fostered, uh, and continued to be 
implemented within this country based upon a white ruling class. And so yeah. the white ruling class reigns supreme above and over all other races. And so that's what we mean when we talk about systemic racism is that these institutions and systems that all of us hold dear were created by the people who had power and are sustained by the people who have power with mm-hmm. little emphases or input uh, given by minority races in this country. And so we have to recognize that. We also need to repent of that as uh, people of faith and attempt to re... And we use the term reform a lot. I'm almost getting to the point now where we need to revision these institutions and systems because anything else than uh, deducing these to a level playing field and then building them back up. We, we can't just build on, we can't build a new system on top of a flawed system. Therefore, our foundation is this flawed system. We need to do some deconstruction of the systems we have in order to rebuild. You're sounding a little bit like an abolitionist there, Mitch. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. not afraid of a little abolition. Let's do it. <laughs> if it makes it better. You know, uh, one right. thing we did on Saturday, um, even though the COVID situation is still very scary, the numbers mm. are rising in our state because we've just flung those doors wide open, you know, right around Memorial Day. Um, we wore our masks, as did That's every true. single person who I saw at the rally, unless they were a baby. Um, speaking of babies, we took our kids. Yeah, you did. Yeah. And they had the, the, uh, one of your children had a, a shirt that has been handed down from child to child. Tell the audience about it. Yeah. So my husband was in law school and we bought my daughter a shirt that is about, um, Brown versus board. And it says they're good, uh, nine to zero, a separate is inherently unequal. And it's this great black and white shirt. So our oldest is 13. She wore it when she was younger. Our seven-year-old has worn it and now outgrew it. And so now our four-year-old is wearing it. He wore it to the rally with his mask and rode in a wagon and passed out water. And you and I were kind of running around trying to interview people, um, our little ones were in strollers. They were chanting along with Black Lives Matter down streets that they've come to know in Norman. You know, this is our route to a snow cone. But yeah. today we're going to walk it. And, you know, we're going to pass that playground that we love because we're doing important work. And they all understood that we were doing important work. This is an ongoing conversation that we've had. We've worked really hard. Um, I'm not saying we are done. Right. But we've worked really hard to make sure our kids know. Um, well, that experience that actually spawned a moment in your house recently. Oh. And it was, it was fascinating. You told that story uh, before we recorded today. And it was fascinating that this experience has had such an impact on them that they are replicating that in their play. Yeah. So our kids play and that's the way, you know, any child works through a situation um, when they are working through tricky situations, a lot of times they'll play. So a lot of times our kids in Oklahoma play tornado shelter and they'll yes, all hide they under do. the table and they'll put on their bike helmets and like, what are you guys doing? We're playing tornado and here goes the siren. Um, but a couple of days ago, my boys who were seven and four were marching around the house um, saying hands up. One of them would say hands up. And one of them would say, don't shoot. And they were marching around the house with their hands up in the air. And then they came to me and they were like, mom, what is, what does hands up? Don't shoot mean. 
And so mm. I had to explain to them, I had them both raise their hands. And I said, when your hands are up, can you hurt someone? And they said, no. And I said, well, there are people who the police say, you know, hands up. And even though their hands are up and they're obviously not going to hurt anyone, they're still shot. And the boys were sad about that. And maybe that's not developmentally appropriate, but that's the world that we're living in. And so that's a conversation that we had to have with our children. Right. You know, and it's, you know, it is, it's a, it's a, for us, especially as predominantly a white class uh, and white families, we have that conversation conceptually. They mm-hmm. were part of a movement. They saw the chance. They heard the chance. And, of course, they're asking the appropriate questions after those experiences. And you and your husband do a beautiful job explaining what those mean. But in a lot of instances, those are conceptual for us. Those are, you know, we have the privilege. Of we have the privilege. Successful. Think about that conversation happening in a black family or a brown family where that conversation is very real. Yeah. That, you know, you didn't have to look at your two boys and say, you've got to do this. And even if you do it, you still may get shot. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. It's so terrifying. So that's why we were in Norman. Uh, this week uh, covering the Black, White, or Black Lives Matter rally. Uh, that's why we were participants and uh, marching with the people in solidarity, saying that uh, we need to change the system that is flawed and to deconstruct what is bad and to rebuild it so that it serves all of our citizens. So it was, it was a pleasure to march alongside not only you, Autumn, but all those incredible students at the University of Oklahoma. Yeah, I have, I have hope. Yeah, me too. Stay tuned for our next segment as we take a deeper dive. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And in this segment, we're going to take a deeper dive into a topic that is not unrelated to the first segment. The President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, announced this last week that he is going to be resuming campaigning and rallies, and his first rally is scheduled for right here in Oklahoma, where Autumn and I call home down the turnpike about 60 miles in Tulsa. And uh, he announced, and his campaign announced, that they're going to be coming to Tulsa on June the 19th, which is historically the day in which uh, the country celebrates, remembers, uh, you know, takes a moment to reflect upon uh, when uh, slaves in the South were given the news that they had been freed. Um, and so it's, it's a very meaningful day, very meaningful time known as Juneteenth uh, in this country. And the president, who has a history of... Uh, I don't want to be what too. Are you going to say? <laughs> what are you going to say? What does he have a history of? Mitch? He has a history You're of. Like a grab bag. It is. He, he has a history of of saying inflammatory things, uh, such as he did in Charlottesville, suggesting that there were good people on both sides of that issue. Um, or that George Floyd was happy in heaven about right, the job. Right. Right. Exactly. And says things continuously. Uh, whether it is a dog whistle or whether it is overt, certainly tinges upon racism and bigotry mm-hmm. in his rhetoric. Uh, and then, of course, came to a culmination 
last Monday in our nation's capital when he called upon federal law enforcement officers to clear Lafayette Park uh, of protesters so that he could walk across the street and have his photo taken in front of St. John's Church. Just an appalling, appalling uh, scene and decision by the President of the United States. So at any rate, he's coming to Tulsa uh, to uh, have a rally next Monday on Juneteenth, uh, on the 19th. But there's also something in the background that a lot of our audience may or may not know. Uh, This past week was the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, It's more popularly known as the Tulsa Race Riot. Incorrectly. Incorrectly, absolutely. That's what I was about to say. Mm -hmm. It really should be called the Tulsa Race Massacre. Now, I know you're a Texas girl, so what do you know... Right. <laughs> That's right. What do you know about the 1921 Tulsa race massacre? Well, actually, <laughs> my daughter um, in sixth grade, she goes to, well, she's a seventh grader now, but when she was in sixth grade, she's in a public school in Oklahoma, and she read a novel in her reading class about the Tulsa race massacre, and she came home in tears. And it really piqued her interest. And so the two of us have tumbled down uh, the rabbit hole of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And then my book club subsequently read another book um, about it. But that was really my first introduction. So I was, you know, 36 years old, the first time I ever even heard of it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I am really surprised. I am pleasantly surprised that your daughter learned about the 21 Race Massacre in Tulsa in public school. Because I grew up in Oklahoma public schools all of my life, uh, K through 12, uh, went to an Oklahoma college, took history uh, there as well. Uh, and it wasn't until I was a young adult that I ever was told about the 1921 race massacre that unfolded in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The story goes that a young African-American man, teenager, was in a office building there in Tulsa, he got on an elevator with a elevator uh, assistant uh, who was a, a young white woman. As the elevator went up or down, I can't remember which uh, direction it was going, right before the doors opened, the young white lady who was the assistant there screamed out, basically yelling, Ow! When the doors opened, the young man looked at the faces of those who were standing at the door. The crowd tried to uh, restrain him, uh, mm. and which they eventually did. Uh, and they did so under the impression that he had somehow uh, assaulted this young white woman. Okay. And so she was taken to jail, or he was taken to jail, excuse me, uh, there in uh, Tulsa County. And a group of white males started to show up at the jailhouse. They were wanting the police officers to uh, release the young man into their custody for vigilante justice. Uh, Thank goodness the police department refused. Uh, In fact, uh, as the the crowd continued to grow uh, larger, and you can read about this at at history.com, by the way, as the uh, history or as the crowd grew larger, um, there's actually some World War One veterans who came to help the police force protect this mob from taking this young man out of the jail. 
Um, the crowds began to disperse, but then again, uh, another group uh, showed up uh, with guns, or, or some of the group stayed, another group showed up. Uh, lo and behold, there was a confrontation. Hmm. And eventually, there were shots fired. And once there's shots fired, then, pardon the expression, all hell breaks loose. And the white mob begins to swell. And they begin to move from the jail cells, or the, the, the police department there in Tulsa, into North Tulsa. Um, North Tulsa at this time was very famous for its black affluence. In fact, Greenwood, Archer, and Pine, and especially Greenwood Avenue in North Tulsa, was known across the country as the Black Wall Street. I mean, it was an amazing uh, place, an amazing community, just a a beautiful, beautiful American uh, story. Well, the white mob began to make their way into Greenwood down Black Wall Street and and began to burn everything in sight began to beat its citizens, began to shoot uh, the, the black student or the black citizens there in North Tulsa. And it just became an incredible, absolute nightmare. Now, there's never been an official study on the 21 race massacre. Uh, eventually, you know, there were some statistics came out that there was only 36 people killed in the massacre. The reality is that number probably is around three to four to five hundred uh, people who were killed, predominantly uh, from the black community. Uh, another side note is that in this race massacre, it was the very first time that a bomb was dropped from an airplane on American soil because crop dusters were enlisted to come and fly over uh, Greenwood and North Tulsa and drop uh, the cocktail bombs on places of businesses and on That homes. sounds like domestic terrorism to me. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. And so that was happening in 21. And uh, as I found out about this as a young adult, I began to ask my grandfather and and actually my great-grandfather who lived to a really ripe old age about this because they lived in Broken Arrow. Mm -hmm. And my great-grandfather said he could remember uh, as a child late at night uh, knocks on the door uh, and his dad would answer the door and there would be an African-American male standing at the door asking his father if they had any food and water for his family. And my grandfather said he could peek through his, around his dad's legs and see uh, women and children in the background near uh, the front of their place. And when my great-great-grandfather asked, what are you doing? You're not the first person who's come through looking for uh, food and water. Uh, the African-American man said, they're killing blacks in Tulsa. We're going to Muskogee. We've got to get out of here. Mm. So it was just a, it was a horrible, horrible incident. So I tell you that story to kind of give you a backdrop of what the president is entering into. Um, again, this is a very sacred time and moment for Tulsa as they remember this terrible event in their past. 
and you have this is up on on the hills of all these incredible ma- marches that are taking place across the country. The death of uh, George Floyd, uh, Breonna T- uh, Taylor, and so many others who have fallen at the hands of, of white supremacy and white privilege and, and abuse of power uh, within our police department. And he's coming in here for a rally. On Juneteenth. On Juneteenth. In Tulsa, a mile and a half from Greenwood. Yeah. So as you can imagine, uh, a lot of the African-American community in Tulsa are extremely upset. And you've done some research on this. Yeah, I have. Um, well, first of all, it, it started sort of trending along some of the um, the black students who I'm friends with um, on social media. And they were several of them said that they their families who live out of state asked them to leave Tulsa mm-hmm. for the weekend. It's Friday the 19th. And they said, well, you just come home um, because I don't think it's safe for you to be there. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing is they you know, these are these are attorneys in Tulsa who work downtown, whose families live elsewhere and are saying, leave, don't, don't be there on Friday or Thursday night. Um, also the, the democratic chair of Oklahoma has, you know, stated that she's really saddened by this choice and that she, they're anticipating there to be counter protests. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be really interesting what happens, you know, at best it's, you know, if I'm looking at this through my rose colored glasses, it's extremely tone deaf, for him right. to come at worst it's just malicious and i'm really afraid that it's the latter yeah you know we've been watching on uh media reports uh from major newspapers across the country the washington post new york times who are saying that this potentially is not only a dog whistle to those supporters who are associated with the KKK, who are associated with neo-Nazi groups, who are associated with white supremacy groups, that the president has finally just declared himself or attached himself to that movement. Uh, Now, he'll say the right things or appear to say the right things, but his actions certainly speak much louder than his words at times. Um, And I remember... There was a great moment in the uh, Florida gubernatorial uh, election in 2018 when uh, Governor Santos, who eventually won the uh, the election, was running against his opponent, his Democratic opponent, who happened to be an African American gentleman, and they started talking about uh, white supremacy and white supremacy support in the election. And Governor Santos said, I am not a white supremacist. And the Democratic uh, opponent said, I'm not saying you are, but what I am saying, those who are white supremacists think you are. (laughs) And I think that is the case with the President of the United States. Yeah. So let that sink in for a moment. White supremacist, neo-Nazis, the KKK think that the president of the United States supports them. Mm-hmm. In his rhetoric and in his actions, they are receiving a message that he supports them. That is terrifying. It is. And he's doing nothing to distance himself from that. No. He is, uh, he, 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 tr- I mean, he doesn't try. He, he gives a uh, weak 
statements, off-the-cuff statements that he points to, suggesting, and then also making uh, claims that just are not true about he's the the greatest president for African Americans that's ever lived. Uh, I think President Lincoln would probably have something to say about that. Uh, and his, Obama uh, did, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you go down the line: President Lincoln, uh, President Johnson, uh, President Obama. You look at all of these these presidents who have passed and signed significant pieces of legislation that have changed. Uh, the culture and the laws for African Americans in this country. Uh, the President of the United States does nothing to point to when it comes to that. So, no. so we're really concerned here. Uh, we'll let you know how it goes uh, next week. In fact, uh, Autumn and I are contemplating on actually getting in the car, driving down the per- turnpike, and attending the President's rally in Tulsa. Uh, interviewing participants, both uh, those are in support of the president as well as counter-protests along the way, uh, because this is a significant event. And what does this have to say about us as a people? But more specifically, what does it have to say as for us as a people of faith? How do we look through these situations? How do we look through uh, the president's rhetoric and actions through the lens of of our Christian faith. So we'll see what happens next week. We'll let you know how it unfolds. Yeah. And speaking of looking at these issues through a Christian faith, up next we have David Cassidy. He's going to talk about some interesting racial and social justice stances that their seminary has made and some new opportunities to really dig into what God says about these situations. Are you worried that COVID-19 is going to put off your plans for theological education? The Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is offering a full schedule online this fall. Our approach to online education is unique, offering classes live and face-to-face via Zoom. At BSK, relationship is critical, and we are thrilled to be able to offer our Master of Divinity, Pastoral Care Certificate, and Rural Ministry Certificate this way. Learn more at bsk.edu. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we have a very special guest with us all the way from Kentucky, President of the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, David Cassidy. President Cassidy, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Well, we've been asking uh, all of our guests as of lately, and we're still finding ourselves in the midst of a pandemic. How are you and the faculty at BSK, as well as students? Everybody doing Okay. We are. We've we've been fortunate that we've we've not had any illnesses. We did. Uh, we do have a couple of students who are more involved in the pandemic. One who is National Guard, and another who is first responder. Um, but uh, thankfully, we've all remained healthy, and of course, we're fully virtual, so that's helping. Yeah, absolutely. So, so before we kind of jump into some questions here, because there's a lot going on, obviously, in the country, and and how. Mm-hmm. Uh, theological education is going to react to that. Uh, tell our audience a little bit about the history of BSK. Yeah, we're, we're one of the younger schools. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, we're formed uh, out of a reaction to the loss of Southern here in Kentucky. Um, and so, you know, the school was formed back in the early 2000s. So we're, we're very young. Right. Um, and uh, we've been fairly nomadic in the sense that we've never owned property. We've always been uh, hosted somewhere. Um, 
and so we began in a church at Calvary Baptist in Lexington, and then uh, we're on the campus at Lexington Theological Seminary, uh, which is right across from UK. But then they sold their property <laughs> uh, because of the Great Recession, and they went mm-hmm. totally online. And so then we moved to Georgetown College. And then uh, just about two and a half years ago, we also opened up campus at Simmons College in Louisville. So, yeah. Excellent. Great. Well, you know, I mentioned a while ago, uh, lots going on in our country at this time, and it seems like it's now a, a global movement. Over the last two weeks, we've experienced protest, marches, rallies, and calls for racial justice as we have never seen before uh, yeah. in our history. As a seminary president and person of faith, what is your reaction to the events of these last two weeks? Well, I mean, first of all, and, and most importantly, uh, heartbroken for the families and the friends of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and, and so many others who have been um, victims of a system of injustice that uh, unduly targets our, our black friends. Um, and, and, you know, I think um, also this conviction that um, this is a moment in which uh, seminaries and churches need to look in the mirror and realize that we have a lot of work to do. This is a call to uh, to get to work. Um, I, I think our faith calls us not just to recognize injustice and point to it and highlight it, call it out, but we're called to also repair what's broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that means getting into the messy uh, and hard work of going on this journey of repentance, listening, and working to change systems of injustice. Um, I, I mean, we do we do this with our kids, right? If um, if we've got you know a, a child who's out playing baseball in the yard and, and a baseball goes through a neighbor's window, um, you know, it's not enough to say, "Oh, well, I went over and apologized, told him how sorry I was." Right? No, you, you got to fix the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I think for the for churches, for seminaries, for people of faith, for us to begin to get into this mode of how do we begin to work not only to notice the broken window, but to start fixing it. Yeah. Change well said. the direction of that bat. <laughs> and yeah. <as> well. <laughs> that, would, right? that would be good too. Yeah, yes. right. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good too. <laughs> so Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has a history of prioritizing racial justice. It's something that's headlined in a lot of things that you all do. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the work you're doing in this space? Yeah, it's this, this become a very significant um, focus area for us. It's, it's a big part of who we are and what we do. Um, and, and so part of it is partnerships uh, that have allowed us to enter more diverse spaces and communities uh, where we have been invited in. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, you know, we are on the campus of an HBCU at Simmons College of Kentucky. Um, been there over two years now, offering full Master Divinity. All our stuff is available there. Students never have to leave that campus. Um, they, they can do everything at that site. Um, Earlier this year, BSK was really honored and frankly surprised that us, a predominantly white seminary, was chosen to be the official seminary of the National Baptist Convention of America International. And it's just a huge and humbling honor. Um, and, And so now we are working with them to figure out what are the specific needs of the black church community that is represented by the National Baptist Convention and how do we shape our offerings to meet those needs. Um, our, we've got a new MDiv that starts this fall. Um, 
We were doing a 90 hour MDiv that was pretty traditional. Now we're doing a 75 hour MDiv and it's infused with black church and womanist theology throughout. And so we have been rethinking every single course to think how, how do we include black theology Black church history, mission, biblical interpretation, all these things, we say it as canonical, not as, oh, we're going to give a little attention to that on the side, but, he, you know, but here's the main content. Instead, we're saying that's center uh, to part to the Christian story, uh, rather than just focusing on white European, as, as so often we have done in theological education. Uh, and then finally, we, in, as part of this new curriculum, we are requiring all our students to take a course in black church studies and womanist theology, um, which is, I think, fairly unique among, uh, among seminaries. So, um, yeah, and by womanist theology, that may be a new term to some folks. Uh, I'm not talking about feminism. I'm talking about womanist theology, which is really theology done from the perspective of black African-American females. Mm. Nice. Black females, yeah. yeah, really nice. So, yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned your partnership uh, with uh, Simmons College, uh, Historic Baptist College in, in Louisville. Uh, I know you've worked closely with their president, uh, Kevin Crosby, there uh, over numerous years, and, and now the partnership with the National Baptist. Um, so this is an exciting time, not only for BSK, but you mentioned some of the issues that you're trying to address as you begin to fuse black theology into the curriculum, uh, mm-hmm. what have you learned in this process? What's been surprising to you along the way? Uh, because a lot of times, especially in the traditional models of theological education that you and I are familiar with, uh, there it's seen through this this white Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. lens, and mm-hmm. it's very European. Uh, but there's a lot of whiteness to it. Let's just be blunt about yes. it. And so what yes. have you learned in this process? Uh, well, certainly not everything, but right, sure. <laughs> as we like to say, we started on this journey of learning. And um, I would say some of the more important things uh, have to do, uh, well, for example, uh, language. Um, African-American language can be very different from white, especially white academic language. And our goal is to help persons be equipped and formed to be excellent ministers in wherever they serve. It does absolutely no good for a black student to come into seminary uh, and then leave talking like me instead of talking in ways that communicate with their congregation. And so we have literally put together a language guide for our faculty now that, um, that understands that there are dialects in the English language, in standard American English, that, uh, and, and, and black language sets are part of that dialect. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we want to welcome the dialect that is available there. We're more interested in what is being communicated and how effective is that. Right. So, so yeah, that it's that kind of thing that, um, that we've tried to institutionalize a bit to help us better focus again on that formation for ministry, which is so important. So, so that kind of thing has been important. Rethinking the coursework, as I mentioned earlier, has been really important, but the biggest learning number one is power Mm. is the fact that as a predominantly white school in a seminary tradition that is seeped in European white Mm. (laughs) theology and history, et cetera, uh, we bring power um, 
that, that, that the black community does not have. Right. Um, and, and so a lot, the biggest learning of our, we were, we did not make this happen for us to be, uh, to be at Simmons. This was by their invitation. And I've had other seminary presidents who have talked to me at meetings and such. And they said, how do we'd love to be connected to an HBCU? How do we do this? And I'm like, well, you need to get invited. (laughs) If, (laughs) if, If you show up, you represent an enormous power and, and, and that is not helpful. Right. You're going to need to you're going to need to form relationships that allow that power to be to be in black space, not in white space. Mm. And that's why it's been so important for us to go there, because so often, and we do this with churches too. We're like, yeah, we're doing we're doing things with the black church down the street, but you know, we may go back and forth. But we need whites need to be in black space mm-hmm. because there's that's their space. There is more power in that space for them. And we need to sometimes in, we need to go to that space and shut up and listen and allow them to lead. It's not going to always be done the way we're comfortable with, or it's always been done or the way we think is best. And we we're going to need to be comfortable with that. And that's been part of our learning at BSK is we are following the lead at Simmons and with NBCA. And that is hard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. it's a fascinating model, and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the, the fruits of of your labor in this effort. Uh, you know, I think the world of you, I think the world of President uh, Crosby, as well as Sam Tolbert uh, with NBC mm-hmm. USA. Yes, uh, yes, I think it's you know it, it could be a, a, a futuristic model for uh, this multicultural theological mm-hmm. education that we're all hoping to to pursue. So, good yes. job. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you. So looking at some of the statistics, um, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has an amazing track record of placing pastors in vocational ministry. I think the stats are like five out of seven, um, keeping them there. So can you tell us what you're doing that prepares these students for success in vocational ministry? I mean, I think, I think there's several factors. Uh, One of the most important is that, um, you know, we are a graduate school, right? We're accredited by ATS. Um, we have academics who teach, <laughs> but our focus is not primarily academics. Our focus is primarily ministry. Uh, and that ministry may be at the local church level, or it may be as a chaplain in a hospital or an institution, as a pastoral counselor, all these different approaches. But at the center is the church. Uh, and so for us, academics is there in the service of preparation for ministry. So our, our curriculum, our approach, it's all aimed at that. And our, our professors are all church people. They, they are all centered in and committed to the health and vibrancy of the church. So I think that comes out in all the conversations we have in our coursework and across uh, the years that students are with us. We also, we only hire theologians as faculty members. Now, sure, we have we have somebody who's a specialist in church history and someone in church in Christian mission and so on and so forth. But those persons, in order to be hired, had to show real um, skill and depth in theology. And what I mean by that is the ability to bring theological lens and filters to whatever content is being discussed. Because our goal is with students that come through our program is formation in and, and the formation is so that we don't know what situation is life is going to throw at them or what situation they'll find themselves in for ministry. But if they can think theologically about that, 
they're going to be so much more effective as ministers, uh, as leaders, uh, as opposed to skill development uh, being the priority or or content development, making, making them expert academics in certain areas. That's, I mean, nothing against that, but our focus is what are the things that help prepare excellent ministers? So it's that kind of thing. I mean, our, our faculty, again, they get together for faculty meetings during semesters they know who, what students are in whose courses. They know what they're all teaching, and they collaborate around that. So if I'm a student in a church history course and in a theology course, my, two, my professors are talking, <laughs> and those courses are going to be integrated across that period. It's, it's really a fascinating uh, system, and, and if you could be in one of the faculty meetings where they're doing this, I mean, it's, it's like magic happening, but, but I really do think that's part of the special sauce that BSK works to provide. Yeah. You used a word uh, formation that I think is central to uh, your success at BSK uh, because there does seem to be this emphasis in bridging the gap between a high concentration of orthodoxy or content or skilled theology mm-hmm. and the practitioner, uh, the yes. theolo- you know, the emphasis of the theological practitioner. How yes. does how do these ideals, how do these uh, these moments of conscience that we have that we conclude through our education, how does that play out on a local level? And it seems as though mm-hmm. you're doing that very successful in, in training your ministers. Well, that's our focus. There are many focuses and, and not all seminaries need to be doing the same thing. But for us, this is this is what we're doing. Good. Well, you know, the pandemic uh, threw a curveball for everybody uh, this last uh, spring uh, with universities and colleges and seminaries having to send students home and really do a deep dive in, very quickly in many instances uh, regarding online education. But for BSK, you didn't miss a beat because you have embraced technology and virtual learning uh, for a long time, uh, probably since your inception, uh, and, and at least some capability, some using technology for, for theological education. Um, how has that process been for you, uh, creating the, the, the virtual classroom, and uh, what doors has that opened for you as a seminary, and also the doors it's opening for uh, seminary students who are applying? Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it, we really began this, the technological push in earnest about two and a half years ago, uh, as we were entering the, the presence at Simmons very seriously, because uh, what we did was set up three Zoom rooms there and three Zoom rooms at Georgetown College, where our other campus is, and those were connected. So all of our classes are offered simultaneously in both locations. Because they're only an hour apart between the cities, our faculty would go back and forth week to week. So one week they'd be in Louisville, in person and virtual to Georgetown, and next week they'd be in person in Georgetown and virtual to Louisville. So it allowed personal presence with everyone, and yet also allowed our two campuses, which have different demographics, to be very connected in dialogue during the courses because the Zoom rooms are like high-end, you know, conference rooms. Mm-hmm. So when we had to go online this March for the pandemic, it wasn't a big leap to go from that to full-on Zoom, uh, right. as we've been doing from our homes and offices. Um. So where we are working now is a very much a hybrid approach. Our faculty is involved. In fact, we have a session this afternoon uh, in an eight-week training program uh, to help us increase our abilities and in, in understanding how to work effectively in education using these virtual tools. So we're 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 and we'll continue this kind of learning and growth. But but very important this summer because this fall we're going to remain online because we're we're still safety first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
But in terms of opportunities, um, this was key to connecting with the National Baptist Convention. Most of their leadership is already in ministry and in leadership. They're not going to be able to get up and move somewhere to go to school. And so to be able to deliver theological education to people already in ministry is key. And, and so, cause most of their uh, audience is in Texas, Louisiana, the deep South. And, uh, and so it's opening up that opportunity for us, but also the same thing. I mean, even in white churches, right? I mean, uh, increasingly ministry is being done by lay persons who are stepping up to fill slots or ministers are being asked to take on new areas for which they may not have much background in and they need continuing it. So our approach, our, we are also expanding our offerings to offer short-term certificates that are graduate credit, as well as our full MDiv and our Flourish courses, which are like six-week short-term, no credit, you know, workshop series. Um, between this spread, what we're trying to say bluntly is that theological education is no longer just for training professional full-time clergy. Mm. Theological education is something that many persons in the church uh, benefit from in helping them do better ministry. And we're trying to reshape ourselves as a seminary to do that. I love that. That's a, I love that. That's a great concept. So. Yeah. And really stripping down those barriers that exist. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So a good faith media or message you have to be Nope, asked. I didn't. I was going to say, I was going to introduce the last question. Autumn uh, usually asks the last question of all of our guests. And it's an important one as far as we're concerned. Yeah, absolutely. So good faith media, our tagline is there's more to tell. So can you tell us for, you know, president of the seminary um, or personally what your more <laughs> to tell is? And then if you want to speak more broadly to the seminary as a whole, what is Baptist Seminary of Kentucky's more to tell? Okay. Yeah. My, my more to tell, um, is probably, I mean, there's, there's lots of things I can talk about. I like to smoke meats and, uh, <laughs> I collect vintage Love computers. <laughs> um, but, um, of late, I, you know, I've long had an interest in church communications, nonprofit communications through my company, Faith Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are actually bringing that to BSK so that one of the new threads in our new MDiv curriculum is helping our students when they turn in a paper. Uh, we don't want it to look like an academic paper. We want it to be typeset designed. Uh, we want it to look and communicate well in a world where that's important. We want them to be able to make videos instead of presentations. We want them to be able to do a podcast like this one and know how to do it. Um, because these are the kind of media and communication skills that ministers are going to need. Heck, they need them right now. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, and so we're, we're building that into our MDiv program. So for me personally, that's been really exciting because that's one of my passions. And to be able to weave that into a, a, a graduate degree, that that's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so for BSK, uh, I want to say two things. Yeah, One, sure. <laughs> um, it's just a promo spot. Uh, we have a new Flourish course that starts on June the 16th. Um, that it, We developed this in a week. That um, and This is a cool thing about BSK, our ability to, to just do things uh, quickly. But our entire faculty is part of this. Uh, it's, it's focused, it's called America in Crisis, White Silence, Black Suffering, protest and transformation. Mm. And you can find uh, information about that at uh, flourish.bsk.edu. It's going to be, I think, transformational for for me and for so many others uh, as we as we learn more about where we are right now and where we can go. Mm -hmm. Um, The other other thing I would say uh, for for BSK um, is that no one believes how affordable we are. 
I tell them, we mm-hmm. publicize it, no one believes us. Um, 75% of our graduates leave with no additional student debt. And those that do, it's under $5,000. Wow. wow. That's now, great. That, nobody believes me, right. but it's true. And, and that's important to us because if churches can't afford our students, it doesn't do any good. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. They've got that much debt. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's remarkable. So for prospective students, uh, president Cassidy, if they were interested in uh, finding out more about the seminary, potentially enrolling in classes, mm-hmm. uh, where would they need to go to do so? Uh, bsk.edu um, is a great place to go. There's lots of information at the very top of that page about uh, what, what we're about, our emphasis areas, including the ones we've talked about today, but others, uh, as well as a nice apply button. But if you want to talk to a human before that, uh, you can. Uh, there's a number there. You can call Abby Sizemore, our director of admissions. She's a lot of fun to talk to, even if you're not applying. So, <laughs> just, so just call her out of the blue. Say, hey, Abby, how are you doing? Abby, <laughs> She's going to appreciate that. <laughs> office. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, well, President David Cassidy of the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, we thank you for being our guest today. And thank you for BSK, you and all the students practicing good faith.